This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Death. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Larry Perel in for Charles Feldman. Well, what might be a good deal for homeowners in California could be a bigger win for insurance companies. We go in depth. Hollywood studios and writers looking to hammer out a deal as local businesses are hoping for a quick return to normal. And world peace. It's been the dream of the ages, and it's a dream that might be closer to reality due to artificial intelligence. Could it be? We'll explain. Yes, we will. Well, we'll we start, though, with a new insurance deal for homeowners in high-risk fire areas. With us now is California Insurance Commissioner Ricardo Lara. Ricardo Lara, thanks for joining us here at KNX. Great to be here. So evidently, uh, there is a plan, a new plan, to keep insurance companies, especially those that offer home insurance policies, from leaving California. Can you outline that plan for us? Absolutely. Under this historic agreement that we announced uh, yesterday, uh, a company will write an average of up to 85% of its state market share in wildfire distressed areas and also depopulate the fair plan, which is the insurer of last resort. And that's a big deal for consumers, especially those that are living in the wildland urban interface, where there is no insurance company that would even return a phone call. And the only option is sending them to the fair plan. That's going to change with this historic agreement. All right. So there are some people who, and you know this, feel that the insurance companies are gouging them, uh, that they're looking for any excuse to raise up rates. And they are concerned. We did speak with someone from Consumer Watchdog. They're concerned that what you have done here is capitulate to the insurance companies and essentially given them what they wanted the ability to raise the rates uh, as they can in other states. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, that they're entitled to, to their own opinion, but obviously they have the facts wrong. The fact is that over the past 10 years, insurance companies have done far worse in California than nationally. During those years, California have experienced nine of the 10 largest wildfires in our state's history. And as a result, even AM Best has downgraded several insurance companies because of the risk alone here in California. And so, you know, the fact is that uh, times are changing. It is difficult given not only with the historic inflation, but with climate change that insurance companies uh, are are either contracting or limiting their underwriting in California. Talking to consumers all around the state and every 58 counties, I'm telling you, it is really impacting and we're at a crisis mode now where people are not only losing their homes, Affordable housing projects are being stalled. Uh, businesses can't get access to, to liability insurance or property insurance. And so this is why it was important for us to engage with the industry, with various stakeholders and consumer groups to really work on this deal that is going to be a beneficial not only to consumers, but to our businesses. And we all can agree that uh, in order for us to have a thriving insurance market, insurance companies have to be willing to write in California, and that is what this deal does. All right, let me ask you this. Let's go back to the time before uh, the fire in paradise wiped out uh, a community there. Uh, if this plan had been in place then, would consumers who lived in paradise, California, be being would they be paying more for their policy or their homeowner policy uh, than people, say, down in uh, the San Fernando Valley? See, well, that, it, it's different. It, it, it's different because we've never had these three major issues really consolidate at the same time with pa the pandemic, the historic fires, and now this historic inflation. 
where everything is much more costlier, the cost to rebuild, the cost to the cost on auto parts, for example, uh, labor shortages. So all that's impacting the global insurance market. Unfortunately, this isn't new to California. What we're experiencing is what every state is experiencing throughout the country. And so as we're tackling these historic and, and unprecedented issue and times that we're in, uh, we have to work with the industry to lessen that risk, which is why I did regulations a year ago to give consumers a discount if they harden their home. That is the first of its nation regulation, again, incentivizing people to bring down the risk by giving them a real discount so that they can use that discount or savings to start harding their homes, which, again, protects their family, their investment, and their community. A quick question before we run out of time. Uh, what you're talking about here, it does seem to indicate there is a bigger problem, and that problem is with the insurance model itself, especially here in California. You talk about rising uh, prices on everything, inflation, cost of homes getting more and more expensive. And now on top of that, uh, some insurance rates are going up as well. That's just going to add to the problem. Isn't the ultimate answer at some point down the road, uh, getting rid of uh, these private insurance uh, companies covering homes in California and coming up with a state option that would cover everybody? No, I'll tell you that uh, I, I'm not interested in having a government program serve as an insurance company. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Because in the 80s, when the legislature at the time forced insurance companies to write earthquake insurance after the Northridge earthquake, what the insurance companies did was stop writing earthquake insurance in general. So we were left with the California Earthquake Authority, which I could tell you it's only 2% of Californians have earthquake insurance, which leaves us very, very vulnerable to an earthquake uh, the same thing was done in the East Coast. Now we're left with the National Flood Insurance Program that not only has inadequate rates, but hasn't modernized in years and doesn't meet the needs of, of current consumers. And so we need to work with the industry. We want them back. This historic agreement does that. Uh, and we're going to continue to work with Californians to lower that risk, keeping insurers writing, which then ultimately lowers the cost of insurance. All right, Insurance Commissioner for California, that is Ricardo Laura. Sir, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to talk with us today about this insurance crisis. All right now, though, striking Hollywood writers and the studios meeting for a third day in a row with the hopes of reaching a deal which can't uh, come soon enough, really, for businesses that have been hit hard by the strikes. Gary West is a photographer who runs Gary West Productions. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So describe your business a little bit and how you've been impacted by the strikes themselves. Okay, over the last 46 years, we've been a major fixture in the special event industry. And during that period of time, have acquired many people who work for the uh, the entertainment industry. I would say at this point in time, between 20 and 25% uh, of our business has been uh, affected by the lack of uh, interaction with anyone in the entertainment industry. And this is why I am somewhat concerned as we speak today and hope that there is an end to this strike, which is uh, going for the records. All right, so let's say, let's cross our fingers and say the writers come out and announce a deal today, all right? And then it's still got to be voted on by the members. And then uh, then it remains for the actors. They've got to end their strike as well. So that's going to take some time. Uh, how long can you last before you have to start taking action, like maybe cutting your uh, force down? Good question. I do believe that we will continue on as we did during the uh, COVID uh, interruption due to the fact that we have 
other divisions of our company where I can transfer our personnel uh, to different areas, such as the uh, aspect of photograph uh, restorations and video restorations. However, the core of our business covering special events such as weddings, barn bat mitzvahs, quinceaneras, and all other celebrational events, these type of requests have ceased to come in uh, ever since the strike started in May. And uh, in answer to your question is we will probably curtail the amount of hours for those individuals. However, we'll still have work to keep them busy, but it won't be anything like how it's been for the, the last uh, 40 some odd years as far as major parties and celebrations uh, for the uh, entertainment industry. It seems like that has uh, come to a temporary halt. So the connection between uh, writers and uh, actors uh, for your business, uh, you're saying is reliant uh, upon their working. Are they just are they pulling back, you think, because on these events uh, because they're not working? Oh, unquestionably, uh, they are. And understandably, they're they're cutting back on all unessential expenditures and one of them being entertainment or uh, or any type of uh, special celebrations, even being a small birthday party or even headshots that would help promote the actors uh, within their own career. So either celebrational or uh, to support their career by bringing their portfolios up to date with more current uh, photographs and headshots. Uh, final question. How long can you hold out? Uh, if, if let's say they don't reach the deal, uh, we don't get an announcement today, it drags on. Can you hold out until next year? The answer would be yes. And only yes, because uh, about 80% of our business, thank goodness, is not dependent on the entertainment industry. And because of that fact, we'll be fine. However, quite a few of my friends who have a much larger percentage of studio business, they may not be able to hold that well, and they may very well have to lay off a large percentage of their staff. So uh, I'm very fortunate that our company will continue doing well. I just feel bad for so many of my other friends, not just in the photography industry and video industry, but also some of my suppliers, even my son who runs a, uh, a catering uh, company doing very well. And he has noticed a downturn in sales as well due to the fact that there is a, a far fewer calls for her, his services in the entertainment industry, even in catering. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Gary West, photographer, runs Gary West Productions, business affected by these ongoing strikes. And later in the show, maybe AI, writers and actors, just over your ears like that. Maybe it's not so bad after all. One expert says it might usher in world peace. And I, for one, would like to welcome our new AI overlords. And I will continue saying that until they take over. Uh, right now, though, United Auto Workers Union has expanded its strike against the big three U.S. car makers. Workers are picketing here in Southern California, in Ontario. There is some progress, though. Paul Eisenstein is editor of Headlight.News, which covers the automotive world. Uh, and we want to thank you for joining us. Uh, Paul, uh, what is this uh, cause for some hope in the UAW strike? 
Well, it's interesting. Uh, this is a case of good news and bad news simultaneously. Uh, the bad news is that we now have 38 parts depots on strike across the United States, uh, operated by General Motors and by Stellantis. And obviously, I left out the name of Ford Motor Company, the other company that the UAW is negotiating with. And the reason why, uh, Sean Fain, the union leader, told us by Facebook uh, Live a little while ago, a few hours ago, that Ford is seemingly coming up with a lot of the sort of things that uh, that they were hoping for for a settlement. Uh, things like uh, uh, improved time off, uh, improved uh, wages, uh, a new cost of living program uh, that uh, helps restore the the uh, protection they had against inflation that they gave up back in 2009 to help the automakers through the Great Recession. So that's a hopeful sign. We may have a settlement coming with Ford Motor Company in the near future, and the union is clearly hoping that between Ford giving them the right sort of package and the pressure that they've added with the, the expanded strike, maybe they'll be able to get a contract with GM and Stellantis as well. All right. Uh, right. So you're saying there could be some momentum if uh, this Ford deal happens, uh, could spread, uh, like we're hoping that the writer's strike, if it gets resolved, uh, spreads to uh, SAG-AFTRA, to actors as well, uh, for uh, GM and Stellantis. Yep. Uh, that That's the goal. I think that, uh, now remember, in normal times, they would negotiate up to a week or so before a strike deadline, and then they would pick what they used to call a strike target, the company they thought they could get the best deal out of. This time, they went ahead and negotiated with all three simultaneously and struck all three simultaneously, which, uh, again, was a, uh, which was a uh, very unusual move. Uh, but it seems to be going back almost like the old pattern. They are now focusing on one company, which they think will give them the best deal, while still negotiating with the other two simultaneously. Is that going to cheat off the other companies, though, if Ford makes a deal? Are they going to be like, uh, you guys? Uh, it always does. Whoever is the first company uh, winds up being able to set, if you will, the dynamics for a contract that the other two companies are pretty well stuck with. Uh, that's a historic pattern. You know, one of these uh, parts depots, as you call them, uh, is based in Ontario. We've been uh, covering uh, some uh, striking workers who are out there, a part of that expansion. Uh, that warehouse used to employ about 250 people. It's down now to about 137. Much of the work uh, in recent years, uh, I've been reading in the Daily Bolton, which is uh, out of the Inland Empire, uh, has been outsourced to low-paying non-union shops, uh, helping to reduce that staff. What's to prevent Stellantis from continuing to go down that road? Well, that's one of the things I'm sure the UAW is trying to negotiate as part of the settlement. You know, we've seen a huge decline in the size of the UAW over the decades. When I first started covering this business back around 1978, 79, it had about 1.5 million auto workers as members here in the United States. It's now down to barely 150,000. But one important thing to consider is that the spinoff effect, now you talk about those contract workers, those part-timers uh, and the like, when you take in all the people indirectly affected by a strike, if they were to go out across the board, if every UAW auto worker at the big three were to go out, and that still could happen if this thing drags on, uh, it's about almost 12 workers for every UAW member. So eventually we could see as many as 2 million people 
directly impacted by a, an expanded strike. All right, Paul Eisenstein, thank you so much for joining us, editor of Headlight.News, covering the automotive world. You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Larry Perel in for Charles Feldman. A big homeless encampment at uh, Echo Park Lake had many people in the neighborhood very angry, very upset just a couple of years ago. Well, the encampment uh, gone now, but uh, now people upset over some new inhabitants. Uh, they're Canada geese. Is it Canadian geese or it's just Canada geese? Uh, though anyway, those big birds are causing all kinds of problems. And here to explain is Attorney Thomas DeBow, who is the former chairman of the Echo Park Lake Park Advisory Board. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. All right, so describe uh, all these problems uh, that are happening there. Yes, uh, right now there's not as many geese as there were <clears throat> during the height of the problem, which was probably from March to the uh, 1st of July. But there still are some geese here, but the numbers of about 200 are not still here, fortunately. They're probably only about you know 30 to 40 uh, on a given day for now. But the problem is basically they get aggressive during the peak seasons, and uh, they actually will attack dolls of all size. And uh, the problem that affects everybody who comes to visit the park is the poop. You just cannot walk around it. You cannot avoid it. You cannot lay a blanket on the grass. You just cannot really enjoy the lake because you, instead of looking at the your guests who you're talking to or the lake itself, you're looking down to avoid the poop. So uh, what what you're asking for is for someone to genetically modify these Canada geese so they don't poop. Well, that would be one solution, but I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, so, uh, what are some I other think, problems? I, I imagine is there a noise issue too? Yeah, there are noise issue too, also. But the the problem is not so much that the goose are, the geese are just doing what geese do is pooping. It's the numbers. So you can, you know, if you take a small, the park is not that large, so it can probably uh, deal with, you know, 50 geese. But when you get up to the hundreds, that's where the problem's going to be. All right. So we have, so we're not in peak season anymore. You say when does peak season happen again? And why are they all, why are they all coming back? Is life so good at the lake for them? Well, like in Echo Park, it's good. So that's just the way it is. Uh, so, uh, but the the peak season is mainly. Uh, their nesting season, which uh, they've chosen Echo Park to be their one of their main nesting season in the area. So instead of going back to Canada to nest, they're nesting here. And uh, so basically, uh, the the season is between like Mar- the end of March and the end of uh, June. So they get very aggressive, and that's when people have to pick up their small dogs and carry them around the lake. Because uh, they will attack adults, too, but uh, most of the adults can fend them for themselves. But I think the nuisance to the neighborhood and to the enjoyment of the park, it really is the poop. But it's the numbers that's the problem. Right. Uh, it, it, possible solutions. Obviously, uh, you know, nobody's really going to come in and, and kill them without uh, generating a lot of outrage. Uh, can they be all gathered up and taken somewhere? Or have you discussed any solution options? Well, the problem, the, the solution's got to come from the city. And there's the, the community hasn't been able to discuss any solution with the city because the city has not showed any interest in discussing this with, with the community. So you would think Rex and Parks would be take the lead, but 
uh, if you will call Rex and Parks about this issue, I would doubt that they would even return your phone call. Why, why do you think it is? Why don't they want to know about this? <laughs> I don't know. Is it the I don't poop? Know. I, I, pardon? Is it the poop? <laughs> Maybe no one likes talking about poop or what to do with it. But I think it's. Uh, I think the the problem is that the community has a good input, but uh, the Rex and Parks, who is in charge of the park, uh, doesn't want to hear any input from the community. So community doesn't have anybody to bring their concerns to. Is this dangerous for people who are going? I mean, you mentioned the dogs, but is it dangerous for people that are going to the park? You say they're, they're pretty I, aggressive, right? Yeah, they are very aggressive. Uh, it's, small, it's probably more danger for toddlers. I mean, adults do have to, like, protect their toddlers. Have there, have there been any lawsuits that have been filed with the city about uh, geese attacking toddlers or anybody else? No, well, I don't know of any lawsuits. Uh, that is something for the city to consider. Uh, that probably would get the city's attention, but I thought maybe the city could just come up with a poop alerts to warn the a people. A poop alert system. <laughs> All right. Code red today. Thank you. That is uh, Attorney uh, Thomas DeBow, uh, who is dealing with this issue, uh, former chairman of the uh, Echo Park Lake Advisory Board. Thanks so much for joining us and giving us an opportunity to talk about poop. It's like a high surf warning. Yeah. Something like a high that. poop warning. There you go. Uh, coming up next, could AI lead to world peace? Guess what? One expert says it might just do that. You know, uh, Rob, we've heard the uh, doom and gloom stories about artificial intelligence. Well, right? you've heard them. Yeah, I have heard them. Right. Uh, I know about the overlord that you're talking about. Right, right. About. I, uh, on the other hand, would love to welcome our AI overlords. <laughs> and you have basically right. uh, done that. Right. And. I will always do that. No, I know you will. Uh, look, AI uh, might lead to the end of humanity. Uh, it could cause this problem and that problem, perhaps. Right. But uh, on the other hand, AI might help achieve world peace. That is why I welcome them, because at some point they're taken over, and I want them to know I was always on their side. Ola Muhajir from the United States Institute of Peace just wrote an op-ed in The Hill saying uh, that AI might lead to world peace, and she is with us now. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So right off the top of the bat, how can artificial intelligence uh, bring us world peace? Well, I think that AI can seriously disrupt the rising conflict trends that we're seeing today. So just to put that into perspective, we are currently facing the highest number of violent conflicts since World War II, and that is impacting 2 billion people. That's a quarter of humanity. And so when I when I think about that, I think that we can do a lot better. And I know that AI is the way to go. It'll allow us to respond faster and better to conflicts when they emerge, and it'll allow us to end them sooner. Applications of AI even show promise of being able to predict conflicts before they even happen. So when, you, when I think about that, I think, well, can you imagine? Now we have the possibility of ending conflicts before they start or sorry, preventing them before they start and ending them faster than we've been able to before. All right. There's a lot of questions that, that we have about this. One that I have is when people talk about uh, peace and, and solutions for all these world problems that we have, there's no sentiment in, in AI. There's no emotion in AI. It's, it's a sort of a blank canvas, if you will. It doesn't have a personality. And it's hard, I think, for people to believe in something that doesn't have emotion and passion behind it? How do you compensate for that? Well, because I think the way, the best way to talk about AI, at least in the applications that I'm thinking about, is as a tool. And so as a tool, 
we humans, we wield it and we inform how it works and what it does. And we stay behind decisions at all times. And so like any tool that we use in our everyday life, think of the most simple one, like, like a fork. You've probably used a fork today. You can use a fork to jab someone's eye out, but you can also use it to feed people. And so if you think about like what prevents you from using it for harm and what would make you use it for good, there are lots of drivers to inform those decisions. And I think what's happening right now is everyone is thinking about that and what that can look like and how we regulate this and how we make ethical AI applications. And it's no different in the realm for peace. And so if we wield it properly, we can do really amazing things. Okay, I, I do want to hit on the mechanics of exactly how it would work. But before I do that, uh, I have to ask, you know, the AI, you say it's a tool. And to use a tool, people have to agree to use that tool. So if AI could prevent uh, violence before it breaks out between countries or, or end a conflict uh, before it goes on too long, that would require people to agree to adhere to it or accede to it. Uh, how can you do that without... Uh, without ultimately having to go to a day the earth stood still scenario where AI takes our power away from us and says, I'm going to stop your conflict by taking your ability to make war on each other away from you. Well, I think that's a really great question. And I think it can clear up perhaps some perceptions that are floating around out there. But um, the way that I think about this is, and so let's go into what would be tangible, actually. So I propose that AI can be used to inform good decisions. We know that's possible. Um, and we know that that's already taking place for companies and in, within the field of medicine and science right now. It's informing good decisions and it's helping scientists and others make new discoveries or see options that wouldn't otherwise be seen. In everything that I explain, it is people who are going to make the decisions and it is scientists who are going to make the discoveries with through the help of AI. So I hope that helps answer a little bit of, of what you're thinking about. This wouldn't be some autonomous thing that goes off and, and does something on its Skynet. own. Skynet. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is this is much more like real. This is like um, like, so you asked for, you were going to ask for a tangible example right now, but one that I highlight in the article that I wrote is just something that we, we know right now. I think people are becoming more and more familiar with chat GPT. And so that kind of software can have really vast applications in the field of peace and security. We require good analysis to make good decisions. We can use that kind of technology to help us gather the gigantic volume of data that we simply cannot process that quickly to respond so well to a conflict. So in the same way that you type into a chat GPT, I propose that we can make that a little more honed, much more spe specific to uses in conflict to help us figure out what exactly is the best way to advance peace in this particular situation. And we would use the volume of data and research that's already out there. We would use new inputs and the technology would help us sort, organize, make sense of, and even potentially at some point, this is all very much in its infancy, 
but propose options. It wouldn't take any options itself. It would tell us, we think you should do A, B, and C. What, and then we would bring that to a, to a conference or to a meeting or to diplomats or to stakeholders or to civilians, whoever, all the people who are involved in the conflict to say, what do you think about these and how should we move forward? Or so possibly uh, uh, contract negotiations between striking worker, workers and companies, which would be uh, ironic so because AI is one of the issues that some strikers are striking over to have AI settle the, the contract for them. Uh, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us and explain this to us, how AI could help achieve world peace. Uh, Ola Muhajir from the United States Institute of Peace, writing about this in The Hill. Check out that op-ed if you get a chance. Well, that's going to do it for In-Depth today. Uh, Larry Perel, who uh, filled in for Charles Feldman today while he's on vacation. I'm Rob Archer. We will be back.